Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Jennifer Forstall and Menica Phillips, who are the authors and edit- contributing Um, authors and editors of The Wise of Western Philosophy, Gender Politics in in Intellectual Labor. This was published in 2021 by Rutledge Press, and it is a fascinating interrogation of how knowledge is is created um, and made and who has a hand in making it um, and who gets to be included in the story of how it was made um, and who often is excluded perhaps the wives and intimates of many um, Western philosophers. Um, And as the book also points out, this is not indigenous to only political theory or philosophy. Uh, But I'm going to let Jennifer and Menica tell us about that. I'd like to welcome them to the podcast and ask them each to tell us a little bit about themselves and how they came to this really fascinating project. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Menica. Hi, Lori. Um, uh, I'm Jennifer Forstall. I am an assistant professor of political science at Loyola University of Chicago. Uh, I am Monica Phillips. I'm an assistant professor at Tulane University, although I'm soon going to be in Toronto in a few months. So you are moving positions. Moving positions, yes. All right. And countries. And countries. Countries. (laughs) Crossing the border. Um, Jennifer and Menica, can you tell us a little bit about how this project got started? Uh, Yeah, but I just found our first WhatsApp exchange on this where I asked Menica uh, if she was still writing about Harriet Taylor Mill. So I will let her explain how we got here. Um, So my... Primary research area coming out of grad school was John Stuart Mill. Um, and I think anyone who reads and researches um, Mill or Mill's reception will, can't avoid the Harriet Taylor <laughs> discussion. Uh, controversy, controversy being Mill said that she was, you know, an intellectual partner and, a, you know, a scholar in her own right. And 
pretty much no readers agree with him or are willing to take his word on that. Uh, but for very select few, um, particularly scholars of gender. Um, and so anyway, I, I kept, I think I kept telling Jenny, like, just reading her snippets of the terrible things people <laughs> have written about Harriet Taylor um, and saying that I wanted to do something kind of about that reception history on its own. And I think then Jenny expanded from there. She was like, there's a whole, there's probably a whole field um, of stories that we can pull on. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I think this was back in 2015. Actually, I know it was because I just saw the messages. Uh, so this was in 2015. So uh, I had just started, I hadn't even started. I was about to start teaching. So I was putting together lectures um, for the first time. I think Monica had been teaching for a year or two. A year, yeah. Uh, and so we were also thinking, I think, about just the role of wives and partners uh, in the biographies of these chronicle uh, thinkers that we often teach and sort of talk about briefly. Uh, and so it just seemed really interesting. <laughs> and then seven years later, the edited <laughs> <laughs> So it just poof arrived, <laughs> fully formed out of Zeus's head. In 2015, I think that it would be a cool edited volume. <laughs> and I stand yeah. by that. <laughs> And it is a cool edited volume. Um, but as you talk, you both talk about in the acknowledgments, which, which gives um, the reader a little bit of insight into the process, you talk about the fact that as you kind of rolled this project along and found it to be really fascinating, you also came up against some um, barriers towards production and publication um, because not everybody seemed to think this was as valuable a project as we all do. Yeah. Um, so we, yeah, it, it went through a few different iterations. Um, so we started it thinking about it or putting it together as a pair of APSA panels at APSA 2016, I think, 2017, the one in Philly. Um, so we had a pair on sort of, we had a panel on canonical thinkers that we proposed. So Socrates, um, Mill, Marx, and someone else, uh, and Tocqueville. That's right. I always forget Tocqueville. Um, and then we had a paired uh, panel on American thinkers and uh, politicians, because many of them were also active politicians as well as political theorists. Uh, and then there we ran into our first hurdle when the canonical panel was accepted and the Americans were not. Uh, so that was sort of the first um, success, but also sort of bump that we ran into, uh, Monica. Yeah. yeah. And then we, um, I think we went into the APSA panels thinking, okay, we thinking of, about it in terms of a volume or some, something like that. Um, uh, and I think maybe we emailed a couple of publishers, they ghosted us. And so we turned to, um, we turned to the idea of a special issue since we already had the panel papers, we were like, well, that's enough for a journal special issue. And so then we started emailing a variety of journals, like political theory journals, journals that um, focused on feminist political theory, uh, our gender politics. And we got ghosted again. Um, <laughs> this was a common theme. <laughs> yeah. Political theory journals did not pick up on it at all uh, or respond really um, at all. The... 
um, journals that had a more kind of gender oriented or feminist political thought focus did at least respond, but it was really only Hypatia that like jumped on it. They were like, mm-hmm. yeah, we're interested in this um, submit basically. Yeah, the same thing kind of happened. So so the same thing kind of happened when we took it to extended it into a volume as well. We asked a bunch of different presses, um, many of whom ghosted us, some of whom politely declined to publish. Um, and then we sort of really happily, the same thing happened at Hypatia that happened at Rutledge, where Natalia Morganson was just amazing, really excited from the beginning, encouraged us to submit, helped us think about what the volume needed in order to do that. Um, and so we got really lucky with both the, the journal and the publisher. Yeah. And okay, correct me if I'm wrong. This was my first foray into publishing, book publishing. Was it yours? Mine too. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like we lucked out because Natalia just met up with us at um, WPSA. Right. We'd had a couple of email exchanges and then she met up with us and she and she talked about it like it was already a book. Like it was like we just had to, you know give her the material, but it was already a book kind of a thing when we didn't have the contract or any of that. Um, and so it was a really, from that perspective, it was a really good first experience with an actual editor, um, and a publisher. Um, but yeah, like Jenny said, she kind of helped us talk through the number of chapters and, um, kind of how we'd want to organize it and pitch it. And then from there we, we started looking for, people to write, um, uh, to expand it right from those original kind of four chapters. Yeah, though, again, sort of having just looked at just like archival research in my own inbox, but um, it was I, I had forgotten about this, but we also had imagined in looking for those four papers, we didn't go into the apps panel thinking, oh, we have to have these four thinkers. Those were sort of who we happened to get people to write about. And so we had made contact with a few of the people who ultimately became book authors, so Jennifer Jones is one of them, um, writing on Rousseau to think about, you know, who else do we need? And Natalia was pretty clear that you need it. We needed many more chapters than we had with the four. Uh, and so the hunt was sort of on and it was surprisingly difficult. Maybe not surprisingly. I mean, it sounds it in, in many ways, the production of this book is kind of like the, the study of, of gender and women's work, um, that is often, you know, overlooked, ignored, not deemed important, um, until somebody, you know, somebody finally sort of says, maybe it's really quite useful and important to think about this. Um, and, and so in reading the acknowledgements and, hearing you talk about it, I was, I, I, I found that both frustrating and, um, and to be expected, unfortunately. Uh, so the wives of Western philosophy is, um, is a synthesis of a bunch of different kind of perspectives on different components of the role of those people who are married to, or intimate companions of the canonical thinkers in Western political theory. Um, But it's not, it's not just about like, you know, who did the ironing um, or took care of the children. Uh, Can you explain a little bit about the, the sort of different components that are at play in all of the discussions in the book? Can I throw in like a, it's related to that, but it's also another interesting 
contacts thing, like when, so we started thinking about this in 2015, the panels was in 2016, 2017, that thanks for typing hashtag started, uh, went viral. Right. And we mentioned this in, in the, um, in the introduction, I think. And so in addition to having an editor come at it and be interested in it, something about this moment too, like people were starting to pick up on it. Cause after that tweet went viral, conferences started coming up, um, other disciplines started like attaching, you know, like kind of piggybacking on this thanks for typing thing and doing it. And in, in relation to your question, Lily, I think what, um, was it Bruce Halsinger? Is that how you say his name? Yeah. What his tweet pointed out is like in the acknowledgement section, it's not just thanks for, and not to minimize, but thanks for cooking or like supporting me, but thanks for doing actual like publishing, researching labor in the production of my book, right? Like thanks for typing, but also thanks for your ideas, which I incorporated into this chapter. And thanks for like, thanks for doing some of the primary research that I then used here and there or for editing and all that stuff. And so you, once you start unpacking it, it's like, you know, we, we have this idea of the lone genius or the, you know, the author in their cabin writing these great ideas, but the amount of hands that go into making that possible really starts to get uncovered. And then when you layer gender into that, there's a whole fascinating, uh, unacknowledged history of production. Yeah, I think from the the chapters, what became kind of clear, um, so there were themes about the sort of idea of a wife as a concept, um, and then the sort of actual wives and the role that they play. But I think the the pattern that came through was that that wives and sort of people more generally, the sort of intellectual communities that we find ourselves in, um, are present in the sort of formation of the ideas, right? They shape how we think about things and what problems we identify. They're like engaged and and important in the like production of those ideas in, again, both a sort of intellectual and like material way. And then the other thing that came up in a lot of chapters was how they, that Menica sort of mentioned at the beginning is that they're also integral in the reception of those ideas uh, and how the archive itself is created. So thinking not just of, how we interpret Mill's claims that Harriet was integral, but also that like Mary Motley was in charge of Tocqueville's papers when he died. Right. So she like literally shaped the, the Tocqueville that we have today and has gotten like a lot of flack for it uh, from Tocqueville scholars, even though Tocqueville was the one that chose her. Right. So thinking about the role in curating their memories or their legacies. Yeah. And there's like an interesting way too, where their role in curating or their role in contributing ideas gets used as a, as like an excuse to not take certain aspects of the, the overall body of work seriously, or to say, well, that, so um, Helen McCabe has this book out um, called John Stuart Mill Socialist. And basically she's arguing that we need to think Mill socialist theory or philosophy um, his politics more seriously, which I agree with. But part of it, part of the reception history around that is people going, well, he got that from Harriet. That was probably just Harriet, like putting her socialist communist ideas into his work. When she died, he kind of backed off, which is amazing, right? It, I mean, so you treat this, this thinker it's interesting because on the one hand, we don't want to acknowledge that these women contributed in significant ways to the intellectual work that these men produced. On the other hand, when we find things we don't like in that work, you know, 
then we then we do take seriously their influence, right? Uh, and reject it. So, and 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 so in the book, you um, you take the reader through sort of three important periods of the development of theoretical ideas um, from Western political theory. Um, and so we have a classical period that you have a number of chapters focusing on the big thinkers. Then um, <clears throat> you have early modern and modern thinkers. Um, and I'd really love to just go through the sections a little bit to talk about um, not only the authors who contributed and, and what their sort of theses were, but how they fit into the puzzle um, in in part because Arlene Saxonhouse's first chapter on Xantippe and Socrates is such a foundational sort of conceptual understanding of the idea of the wife. It's so good. It's so good. Monica, <laughs> <laughs> do you want to start us off? Um, yeah. So kind of in terms of like the conceptual organization of the book. Yeah. So I think um, Jenny mentioned, um, mentioned this earlier the it we didn't plan it like us like we didn't go to the authors and say okay we'd like you to kind of comment on these aspects and then other you know it just ended up happening that the people who were writing on the ancient and particularly Arlene and Sarah so on Socrates and Aristotle um what they ended up giving us was the kind of conceptual foundation for the book. So how it is that the wife operates as a political category uh, in the history of political thought, particularly in these foundational, you know, um, thinkers, right? Um, so Arlene does that through this like super interesting reading of what Zantippe kind of embodies uh, in relation to the death of like the, the scene of the death of Socrates, right? Like, and then how her presence in the readings, but also in the reception of the readings, marks certain important distinctions, right, um, between spaces, between embodied living and philosophical thinking. And then Sarah comes in and, you know, goes to Aristotle and points out really effectively how significant the wife, again, is as a political category, but as a boundary marker, right? I mean, he, he really uses that um the wife as a boundary marker between um spheres or spaces between um functions i guess right um and then from there <laughs> it, it just so happened that the authors who were writing on um kind of the early modern and later thinkers shifted into thinking about okay how so from the wife as a political concept to thinking about the wife as a political agent, like as an intellectual agent, what did that look like uh, in the relationships of these thinkers? And I think partly that's that's a question of archives, right? Like uh, what we have to draw on, uh, that there was more of that as you go, um, go further um, along. But it just ended up telling this really interesting story um, about a character and an agent at the same time, I guess. Yeah, and I guess I, I I think that's right. And it's one that played out just like beautifully between all of the different chapters in ways that we could not have anticipated, but we're very, very happy to see happen. I made writing the introduction very, very easy. 
Um, but I think also just is like very telling that this pattern comes up time and time again. Um, and as we allude to in the conclusion, it's not just about academic philosophy, it's about intellectual labor more generally. Um, and that, you know, as we were doing this project over the past seven years, um, and uh, so I, I tweet about it a lot and people have just started like sending me these stories that appear in other places too, right? It's like the wife is always a figure that helps establish boundaries, even as they uh, create possibility for the things that happen within them. So it happens in art, it happens in tech, it happens in, in sort of anything you can think of. Um, and our authors just did a really good job of pulling that out for us. And the last section of the book is um, what we would consider modern thinkers, um, wouldn't necessarily uh, contemporary, um, but um, how does that section and and the thinkers included there um, connect to or follow from the ones that had preceded it? When you're starting to talk about like Marx, um, and also you have some of the not just not just the wives, but also hmm, mistresses who are are part of the dynamic. That's a good question, especially because we like created the book kind of backwards, right? So the four the three chapters at the end, though, quote unquote, modern thinkers are actually the first chapters that we got. <laughs> um, but I mean, I, so I think what you see is sort of as the book progresses, you can see how these concepts are sort of forming. And by the time we get to Mill, Marx and Tocqueville, um, they're sort of reified in these like really interesting ways so that we can talk more about like reception histories uh, in those three chapters. Whereas the chapters on Rousseau and Montesquieu um, and Locke are really about recovery more than anything else, right? It's about like finding, uh, you know, the Clark women who are not really, who are like literally erased from the education essay, right? It's about finding Montesquieu's wife. It's about, or the lack thereof, as Brian points out in his chapter, right? She's just not really there. Um, it's about recovering the, the uh, reputation of um, uh, Therese Levasseur uh, for Rousseau. And, and there again, I think you see that the connections, right? That like Xanthippe creates this like, you know, stereotypical wife that then is used to attack uh, Therese when she is with Rousseau, who is then, you know, used as the model of like, this is the problem for Mill too, is this sort of hanger on women. And so I think those last three chapters just show you like how severe those categories sort of became towards the, uh, you know, as time goes on. And I think the same thing is probably true of the 20th century that we didn't write chapters about it. Um, so I did a little bit of research into like Alice Dewey and John Rawls's wife, um, Martha, I think. Um, and, you know, it's even worse <laughs> for them. But uh, yeah, I don't know, Menico probably has more to say about the moderns. Yeah, I think. So yeah, what Jenny said is true. We started with the moderns and worked backwards. Um, but I think that I think what for me comes out with the modern chapters, and that's partly because I was intentional about that with my chapter on Harriet, is that it's a disciplinary critique um, built in, right? So there's a lot about the relationships and what the women 
contributed and did, but there's also, I think, maybe a slightly more explicit commentary on how the discipline has received those relationships, um, which is maybe not as um, not as central in the earlier chapters, which actually makes the story kind of <laughs> more seamless, right? Because we're starting with the wife as a concept and how that gets employed. And then we end up with, well, how does this shape the discipline that we work in? Um, and that, that's my sense of the latter chapters. Again, Mary, Mo- Mary Motley, right? <laughs> like how Tocqueville scholars um, interpret the, the issues they have, let's say, with the fact that she was, uh, he made her um, the curator of his works. Uh, and of course, the same is true with, with Mill and Harriet. Like, I mean, there, no Mill scholar doesn't have an opinion about Harriet, right? Um, so I think towards the end is, is we're starting to talk about how these gendered forms of intellectual labor and their exclusion have really shaped the academy in which we work. And I think that's where we end up in the conclusion too. Like, I mean, it's seven years project. A lot of happened and a lot of things happened in those seven years, including COVID, right? Like, I mean, we, we ended up finalizing it during COVID and that's some really interesting stuff started coming out in COVID about when we started closing universities and like, um, I think we start with that quote from uh, one scholar who said, you know, universities are about intellectual production, not about staff and, um, you know, do what we can to help them. But universities are primarily about intellectual production. And you're like, wow, we're, you know, you couldn't have said it better. I couldn't have stated yeah. the problem better. I don't know that he knew he was doing that, but that's, that's what he was doing, right? Sort of discounting again all the things that make intellectual production a possible, um, but also the different forms of labor that like go into it. Right? Yeah, I guess I, I think that's absolutely right. And I also just think uh, it, it is sort of nice that Terrell Carver's chapter is on biography as a genre, right? So I think it's the kind of disciplinary concerns that Menico was just talking about. And so we sort of start with this, you know, conceptual formation of the wife and end with like, this is now a genre of writing that has styles that dictate what stories are told and how uh, such that like you sort of can't break out of it or not easily. Cause we're sort of, and this is kind of the problem that we ran into with people when we were sort of trying to find contributors, partly it's a question of archives and, and like, it's really difficult to write without an archive. It's not something that many of us are trained to do. Uh, I think telling that it's historians mostly that we got for those chapters. Um, But also we, you know, we had, and this is not, I think a fault of anyone, but we had a lot of people that we approached and they were just like, I don't know that I can write about this. That's just not, I don't have anything to say about what she did. You know, I know she exists and, and that's sort of what we're trained to think about or how we're trained to think about it. And so it was a pattern. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And and uh, and that was also what I thought was really interesting because you sort of, you pull this through and, and as you note, it's sort of more the case in the end, but this question of the sort of biographical narrative around the thinkers, um, around their capacity to, you know, come up with these ideas and then write them in these weighty tomes that we teach our students um, and that we read a lot through many times. Uh, and, and that it becomes this, you know, sort of this is the sort of um, imagined capacity, right? Because it's, it, it is the individual man sitting in the cabin writing the book. Um, and that that's the biographical narrative. And so when you start telling students or engaging students with like, you know, who, who else helped? Yeah. So I get, can I, I've got two things on this one, Jenny, Jenny, like um, reminded me about this when she was speaking, but Carver's like Terrell's chapter nicely ties back to Arlene's chapter because he's like this whole genre of, of biography, intellectual biography is disembodied. Right. Mm -hmm. And like goes right back to that. He's like, you can't understand Marx and Engels without thinking about their actions, right. Their activism and who was involved in those actions in in that activism were these women. Um, But Jenny knows the story. I've told it well to her multiple times. (laughs) It's my Beyonce story. Not that I met her, but she came up, um, which goes, I think, exactly to Lily's point about how we teach our students. Um, And I think one of the things I get from this book or that I hope other people get from the book is that we don't talk about collaboration as if it's a valuable intellectual enterprise, right? And, And an enterprise that has long been foundational to the development of political thought. And so um, I did this panel at Tulane on race and gender and Beyonce's album Lemonade uh, for the gender studies program. And it was like, there were four panelists talking about a variety of things. It was really interesting conversation. And then we had this Q&A section and this student stood up and asked like a really innocent question that was based on um, reviews uh, that had been coming out about Lemonade, right? And so she was like, do you think, you know, people say that Beyonce doesn't do interviews um, and that's partly because she has so many people on her album and they, you know, they wonder if she's really the brains behind the operation, right? Because she she has other musicians, um, singers, et cetera. Essentially, she collaborates on her albums, right? She has other people involved, so she can't really be, is she really as good as we think? Or is she just relying on the labor of these other men, <laughs> many of whom, uh, right, appeared on Lemonade? And I, it struck me in that moment how bad a job we've done about teaching students about the nature of intellectual production or Mm -hmm. creative production um, that for them, it counts as valuable. It counts as genius only if you do it on your own. Mm -hmm. Right. 
that they they can't perceive intellectual relationships and um, joint productions as as equally significant. And that's partly because we, as I think Terrell's Carver, Terrell's um, chapter points out, we've taught these texts as if they were the production of disembodied brains, right? Floating <laughs> around. And, and, you know, we have a tradition also in the academy that you get more credit if it's single authored as opposed right. to a collaborative work um, because we can't figure out who did the real work so you yeah. don't get as much credit for it. <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of striking me that it's also, I mean, uh, you know, the academy, I guess, is wide ranging. But like we over the past few years, it's like we political theorists are also just like can't really wrap in, in like other people, other subfields, other disciplines seem to like collaborate all the time. Uh, but like we don't. And it's to the point where like I have had a lot of people sort of be like, I can't believe you do so much co-authoring. Like, I, you know, like, how does this work? And I'm just like, wow, I this is like maybe changing, right? Like, I think more people are maybe thinking about co-authoring maybe because we simply cannot keep up with our expectations as single people. But like, I, you know, it's, it's striking just how different it is in our field, even compared to other, yeah, other subfields I mean, in political science. Just tenure reviews, right? How many are solo? How many yeah. are co-authored? Yeah. How many points do we assign? Right. Yeah. We're like, you know, what, how good is your solo work? So I know how much to attribute your input in the collaborative work, right? That like, you're only as good as your solo work. And, and again, there's, you know, there's a lot of data with regard to um, publications and if they have a lead author as female or male. Um, so this comes back around to the whole, what is the role of the female in the collaborative space uh, that your book is really kind of getting at? Because none of these women were really credited. It, it is a kind of recovery of what their roles were in helping in some way, intellectually or otherwise, to produce the ideas that are the foundation of Western political thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and I, I find that really fascinating because, again, it's like, huh, heard that before. Um, it's, it's, it's a story that I know. <laughs> Yeah, I think it was also, it, it became, I think, more, as, as the chapters came in and as we got deeper into the project, I don't want, I won't speak for you, Monica, but I, it became more important to me also that we were not just saying wives are important because people have to eat, right? Which is like the easy way to tell that story. And it's true. I think there was a book called like Who Cooked Adam Smith Dinner or something like that. That's like his mom did is the answer, right? Uh, and that's important, right? We are bodies that need sustenance uh but i also think like part of the project too was like not just also expanding our understanding of like the needs that go into intellectual production but also thinking like of the ways that we conceptualize intellectual production right that like having conversations with somebody even if they're not actually writing in your google doc right is like a really important part of working out ideas and i think it's something that anyone who tells you they don't do is like lying to you. I don't know. Like you have to work out your ideas somehow. Right. And so we do that all the time. We do it over coffee. We do it over text messages, but it's like, that's intellectual labor too. And the wives have been doing that 
even if they haven't been writing stuff down, which in some cases they did that too, right? And they were just like ignored. Um, but like, I think, you know, part of what we wanted to do and like get really get across is this idea that like, it's not just wives taking care of the material needs of men. It's also this like understanding of intellectual production as a kind of conversation that exists in many different ways with many different people. Now I'm just thinking about this because of this conversation, but you know, if you teach democratic theory, right? I mean, you're teaching students about the importance of deliberation and conversation and engagement with each other for the purpose of producing ideas, policies about the world you want to live in, right? And yet we don't. So it's essential for actual political lives, but we don't seem to recognize that it's essential for this kind of pursuit of knowledge uh, work. Yeah. And I think, again, I I also want to stress just because I'm like thinking of this now, too. Like, I think we say this in our introduction as well, because like we're not the first people to come up with this idea that like knowledge is comes from a community and like scholars need to be sort of connected with their their communities outside of the academy, right? So there's a lot of people that have done that for a really long time, Black feminists for one, right? But like, uh, I think this is sort of another way into that kind of question and to show that it's not just about, you know, particular communities, particular sort of contemporary moments or problems that like, this has always been the way that knowledge has been produced for everyone. Uh, And this is, this volume is like another way of getting at, at the importance of that, acknowledging that. Yeah, I think we talk about it maybe in the conclusion in relation to other other women um, who, um, you know, who this kind of work could be done for to kind of recover. But it's it's a form of gatekeeping. Like, I think we've we've been trained to see this as sort of separate spheres. Right. The, you know, th- these are the people in the background culture. They make they make the stories about these men more interesting. They add color. Um, but that even just that way of thinking about it is a form of gatekeeping. Right. Uh, and I think we draw, we draw on like bell hooks, especially, but also Patricia Hill Collins to think about gatekeeping and feminist theory. And this is sort of another frame for that. Um, um, cause it's you <laughs> in a way by, by personalizing the other characters in these men's lives, you neatly separate them out. Right. From, from this productive labor. Yeah, you know, Boris's chapter on Machiavelli and Barbara Salutati does a really good job of uh, sort of dramatizing that too, right? That gatekeeping where like the like the way that political theorists interpret the play, uh, what is it, La Man Pergola, um, is to like, th- like look for who is the voice of Machiavelli here? Who's the character that is espousing his ideas? And Boris does a really nice job of showing that like, actually it's supposed to have like interludes, the, the like songs that serve as interludes that are doing a lot of theoretical heavy lifting. And those are also the things that Machiavelli um, created with Barbara, his mistress, <laughs> right? And so thinking about, you know, how we read text and like how we look for ideas and interpret um, is um, needs to be expanded as well. 
Well, I mean, it, it goes to, you know, when you have a narrative of that form of a play, like what is, who is the author's voice, right? Um, be it classical productions or Shakespeare or Machiavelli's work or even contemporary television or film is like, you know, what is the director's voice um, in in this? Uh, and, and how much credit do we, how much credit do we give to that voice also? Um, I wanted to ask you, because I often ask this of authors who have edited a book, um, and you've sort of talked a little bit about this already, but as the chapters were kind of rolling in and you were reading through them, were there really surprises or tales that you didn't know that, you know, kind of changed your whole thinking about something? Go ahead, Maggie. <laughs> Okay, Locke, Emily's chapter on Locke. Oh my God. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. I, I can't teach him now without, without having that in my mind. I mean, he, you know, he uh, plagiarized another someone else's work in, in, yeah. in that sense, right? In that he was observing and having daily communicate and having like real communications with. Um, the Clarks about, well, especially uh, Miss Clark, right? About how she was raising her children and using that directly <laughs> and never acknowledging it. Not once. And instead acknowledging her husband, her right? Her husband. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that, that one was striking. Yeah. <laughs> I So uh, for me... <laughs> I, intellectually, I think that Terrell Carver's chapter on biography really stuck with me. The like imagery of like minds, men, what is it? Minds without bodies uh, is like something I can't let go of. But like the dudes in this book did not come out looking good. Yeah. Right? So like Tocqueville's freaking temper tantrums that he had when Mary Motley was like, no, I'm not going to do that for you, dude. It's just like, oh my God, he's a child. He like threw his dinner on the ground. Like, I'm just like, come on, guy. <laughs> I kind of went in going, well, I'm not, I'm not going to be a fan of Rousseau. Like, yeah. yeah. And I kind of came out going, yeah, it's, 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 uh, I think um, Jennifer's chapter complicates that story, you know, like gives it a yeah. lot of depth than, than where we used to. Um, but yeah, the, yeah, the, the guys do not fare well. Um, yeah. I think the Rousseau chapter, I also did not go in expecting to, sympathize with Rousseau, but I think making Therese uh, the kind of agent that Jennifer does, she does like such a good job of bringing her to life and making her her own person, which looking back, I realized like she was never a person, like a whole person with agency whenever I thought about her in the stories that we heard of Rousseau. She was like a hanger on and she like produced babies that he then ditched, right? Like that's yeah, the story. That's the whole story, yeah. So uh, I... Like the the nuance in their relationship that she was able to capture in that chapter, I think probably yeah. shifted my opinion of Russo, maybe for the better, but hard to say. <laughs> so so the the idea of the disembodied mind from the body is one that actually has done a service to many of these thinkers because it got them out of trouble, as it were. Yes. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, 
Yeah, they, a lot, and a lot of them are just like entitled dudes who want to get what they want. Medica has told this story of Mill a bunch of times writing in his, you can help me back in in his like like oh i just want to be with you and you're like i'm so you know hurt and like i'm suffering over here come on aren't you gonna get divorced and she's just like go to hell dude like <laughs> what are you talking about yeah so. i mean he talks about his intel the his it's basically his like work is suffering right which is yeah. something that his buddies are telling him too uh or insinuating and so that's part of what's going on in that exchange i think and she's just like i'm married and i have three children and it's victorian england but <laughs> yeah. yeah like we got we're embedded we're embedded in communities guys <laughs> get to escape them just because you're told that you can escape them it's not a romance novel yeah <laughs> so what are the yeah. two of you working on now either together or separately oh oh, oh. <laughs> uh well i guess i'll start with together and then Manik, you can help fill that out uh, or talk about your own stuff um so we have uh, a paper that we are working on. <laughs> Wait, which one? <laughs> we, have two. we have a paper on um, WikiLeaks and the Pentagon Papers that is thinking about information curation uh, and democratic accountability. We also have a paper in progress on that's using the examples of the NAACP and Anonymous, the group, the hacker group, um, to think about democratic organizing and the structure of uh, democratic movements. Yeah, those two are part of, well, we think of them as a series. Um, we have a paper that's out with CPT that was on um, anonymity and social media. Um, and so those three, we kind of think of them as projects on um, democratic practices um, in the contemporary age in relation to anonymity and digital technologies, which is Jenna's, Jenny's forte, obviously. Um, so that's, so we've got those two working papers that we really need to, need to <laughs> we really need to get out. <laughs> well, it's the week before the MPSA. You know how these things are. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and then Menica has a book coming out. Yeah. Um, Jenny's book is out. I know. I'm going to schedule Jenny to talk about her book this summer. Um, but I need to also schedule you, Manica, to talk about your book when it comes out. So yours is on Mill. It is on Mill. Hopefully it'll be out early next year. Um, I need to, you know, once all the copy editing and revisions are done and once I have a cover, which I need <laughs> desperately. Um, but yeah, it's on mill. So that, that's the project, the, the project that got me started in this direction on Harriet um, and why is an intellectual labor, but it's a totally different project on mill. <laughs> that's okay. It's on, it's on interpretive traditions and using mill as an example of how liberalism as a frame traps us into certain bad habits. You just got a window into our WhatsApp. Like, it's just like, Jenny, what's my book about? <laughs> what am I doing here? Can you summarize my work? And Monica, what's Jenny's book about? <laughs> so I got that um, in the mail. When did I get it? A few, a couple months ago, right? And I have to, I got to plug the cover. Um, mm. It's amazing. But Jenny's book is a fascinating 
uh, intervention into democratic theory that looks at how and why we should take digital technologies seriously um, first for thinking about effective democratic practices, but also she has this angle on thinking about them as architectural spaces, like how we design these spaces to make them more effective places for civic practice and deliberation and engagement. Um, yeah. I mean, can you think of a, a more timely or pressing <laughs> topic? Not at Uh, all. And so I am looking forward to talking to Jenny about that book because I do have a copy of it. And I'm looking (laughs) forward, Menica, to talking to you about your book when I get a copy of it. So our conversations (laughs) will continue separately and possibly again together um, as you two continue to work on work together um, in a collaborative way. Nobody's yeah, getting. Yeah, I re- highly recommend it to everyone else. Get a Menica; they're wonderful. <laughs> Get a Jenny. Um, no, it's good. It's been you know we we talk about collaboration and how significant it is. That you know, noting that not all collaborative relationships are equal, right? I mean, yeah, that's uh, you definitely do hear the the negative. Um, stories where one person is doing too much or it's just not working but in our case it's been uh it's been a dream um and gotta say it was a dream working with our authors too people also have horror stories about edited volumes and we experienced i think zero of those all of our authors did things on time they got us what we needed as soon as we needed it yeah, they are. They were all wonderful, and they're also brilliant because the chapters they contributed yes. are really, really thoughtful and interesting. And as you point out, they really kind of circle the same themes of what does it take to produce intellectual labor, um, and you know how do we have this concept of the female helper, um, and you know how has that sort of become enigmatic in a lot of ways. So I, I, I commend you on recruiting them and, and, and keeping them um, on time and, and getting them to produce brilliant work. So well done. Um, and, and I would like to thank you both for joining me today on the New Books in Political Science podcast. It's been a pleasure and a joy um, to talk to Jennifer Forstall and Menica Phillips about the wives of Western philosophy, gender politics in intellectual labor, published in 2021 by Rutledge Press. I assume one can purchase this at the Rutledge Press website. Um, Do you have any particular brick and mortar stores with an online presence to which you would like to give a shout out? And if women and children first, where is women and children first? Oh, I mean, it's uh, in Chicago. (laughs) Um, But you can, I think, order their stuff through bookshop.org. Thank you both for joining me today. It's been so much fun to talk to you. Thanks, Lily. Thanks, Lily.